Before we begin, this is a podcast about terrorism, which means we do talk about acts of terror and extreme violence, sometimes in quite a lot of detail. So you might find some of the following material upsetting. Hello, I'm Adnan Sawa. This is Taking Apart Terror. And here's a job ad with a difference. Oh, you who believe, answer the call of Allah and his messenger when he calls you to what gives you life. That's part of a 2014 Daesh video, There Is No Life Without Jihad, aimed at inspiring Western Muslims to join them. And we know that many did. But what inspires people to respond to calls like this? And what should be done with those who have and then committed terrible crimes? And once they've heeded that call, is there any going back? Or as we're asking in this edition, once an extremist, always an extremist? To try and answer this question, I'm joined by an exceptionally knowledgeable panel. Firstly, two of our regular contributors, the Director of the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation and Political Violence at King's College London, Dr Shiraz Mayer. Hello Shiraz. Hi, how are you? And Associate Professor of Terrorism and Political Violence at the University of Leiden, Dr Joanna Cook. Thank you for joining us, Joanna. Hi, how are you? Then we have not one, but three specialist guests. Dr. Virginie André is an expert in disengagement and exit work, as well as early prevention of radicalisation and extremism. Welcome to the programme, Virginie. Hi, Adnan. Oni Sarvella is a PCVE specialist. That stands for Preventing and Countering Violent Extremism, specialising in helping young people withdraw from extremist thinking and violent activities, particularly in his native Finland. Hello, Oni. Hi. And finally, award-winning journalist Rudy Frank, who has reported on some of the world's most dangerous and difficult war situations, including the camps that are currently home to thousands of former fighters. Hello, Rudy. Welcome to the programme. Hello. So to start with, we've borrowed the title of Virginie and Oni's research, Once an Extremist, Always an Extremist? And they've put it as a question, probably the main question most people will be wondering about. Is it possible for someone who has held extremist beliefs and probably taken actions based on those beliefs to change? Virginie, can you help us with that? Absolutely. People can change, uh, but it's part of a long process of disengagement. First of all, it's not a linear process. It's also usually based on a voluntary basis. There's a whole process of rehumanization. You know, when it becomes okay to start hurting other people, usually those individuals disconnect from their humanity and the humanity of their victims. And so there has to be a, a whole process of rehumanizing those individuals that perhaps before you perceived as enemies. And of course, you have also to rebuild a new identity, which is away from violent extremism, because once you start joining an extremist group, you embrace that identity and it becomes part of who you are. But as soon as you exit from the group, the question is, who am I? Some of the factors that lead people to wanting to disengage from a, a group um, can be, for example, the disillusionment towards the extremist group, um, also the physical and emotional exhaustion from the dysfunctional violent extremist environment. You may then find yourself that this is not actually what I had signed up for, and they may be looking for a way out. And of course, you also have the same way uh, there are social relationships and encounters that can lure people into violent extremism. The same 
types of social relationships and encounters can help them to exit uh, violent extremist groups. And very often, if you have the birth of a child, for instance, uh, that also can help um, the person who, who is becoming a father or mother to think that perhaps this is not uh, part of the future anymore. And they may be then looking for a way out of, of violent extremism. That has given us an excellent introduction to this subject. Oni, you've worked with people who are leaving these organizations. You know, what are the difficulties that you're seeing? First of all, that when you are part of the group which which use the violence, then of course at the first step there is a security issues. And it's not only about the person who is trying to, to exit the disengage, but also the family and loved ones that there is uh, always the uh, possibilities that uh, the former group is threatening you or there is a possibility for violence. The, the one challenge is that, that if you start thinking that where you were and what you did is not anymore right, that how you deal with that. The change is very slow and uh, the communities or society is not always very welcoming. The getting the, the income from your family, the building up the new social networks, like if you're social networks have narrowed down to the only to these extremist groups. It's not only negative, you build very strong relations. How you leave people behind who are really uh, like literally sometimes willing to kill for you and all these kind of emotional connections that you have with the people and environment, which you have to also deal when you are exiting. You are stepping in a void, the social void where it is totally possible that you're totally alone. And when you start trying to start building the new relationships, uh, new social networks, and, and there is this possibility that they always hear that, what have you done, where you have been, and it can ruin the new social relations. So how you motivate yourself to build a new life when there is so many obstacles Joanna, I wanted to pick up on something Oni just said there. Uh, you know, what have you done? You know, how do societies think about these people when they come back? Do they want them back or do they want to punish them? Terrorism in particular is generally one of the types of criminal activity that is viewed as exceptional. And it's it does uh, have a certain type of, of fear associated with it in the public mind. And so uh, I think there's been a long tradition of, of viewing terrorists as, uh, as largely uh, males. And what uh, what ISIS has really shown as well is that when we're talking about people who are affiliated with some of these groups, we're talking about very diverse populations. So whether it's uh, adult males, whether it's uh, adult females, whether it's children that were taken or born into the group, uh, these are very complex populations that each face a very differing uh, level of needs for support and rehabilitation as they're disengaging from and reintegrating into these societies. And I think when we're talking as well about disengaging, in the literature around disengagement, we often talk about cognitive disengagement and we talk about behavioral disengagement. And what those mean is if we're looking at uh, cognitive disengagement, it means changing the way that you think. And so in disengagement work, you talk about um, changing the way that people uh, think about that, that ideology. If you're looking at behavioral disengagement, you're, you're trying to convince people to, to change the type of actions that they're willing to use on behalf of an ideology or on behalf of a political motivation. And that's an important part of the discussion as well. Rudy, you've spent a lot of time on the ground talking to former fighters, especially in camps like Al-Hol, where all the women and children uh, are being held. Do you think, I mean, from what you've seen, do you think the women there could be de-radicalised? 
there's evolving a new kind of a small caliphate there. You see, you have these women who came to me and they identified themselves and who wanted to contact us, who wanted to come back, who are de-radicalizing because they lived through hell and they saw that this was not the life and they were disillusioned. But there is an, the same amount of women there with children who still are in deep, deep hatred vis-a-vis -vis our society. You see more and more stories of women who are lurked back into this environment because they had no choice. We are missing an opportunity to get them out and de-radicalizing them, or at least trying to put them back in a kind of new life in our society. Our society seems not ready to take them back, even if they know that they are facing five to ten years of imprisonment. Shiraz, Rudy's talking about society's attitudes here and about law and imprisonment. Is this really about the law or is this about what people think? Public interest is a large component of our legal system. And at times we do need to have a social conversation about where we think we as a society stand and what we think as a society is the right thing to do. So you might feel that there is a sort of moral duty to bring these people back and to try them. There are two important factors into that that we need to consider. The first is that we need to think about issues of equity and who gets held accountable. And the second is that whilst you and I might think it's the right thing to bring them back, frankly, the overwhelming majority of the public doesn't think that that's the right thing to do. And that is an important, as however crude you might think it might be, an important consideration in this debate. Public opinion. The debate on what should happen to extremists. For many of us, it's an abstract thing, an argument to have round a dinner table. But what about the people whose lives have been profoundly affected by organisations like Daesh and their recruitment drives? Rafat, he's asked us not to use his second name, risked everything to leave Syria in a tiny boat in 2015. One of the things that drove him to leave his whole life behind was what happened to his friend Mazin, whom he'd known since they were seven. It all started when Mazin's girlfriend suffered terribly at the hands of the Syrian government. She lost a huge part of her own family. That's what made him decide, okay, I, I want to take the revenge against the government, you know. And he decided to give up on his future and to have a gun to protect the family. And he was a believer, very normal believer. Rafat heard that Mazin had had contact with some jihadis, but he didn't know exactly what was happening until one day when he was sitting in an internet cafe. I opened my Facebook and I was literally shocked because I, I saw a post from him that he's officially saying that he's from Daesh. He was like threatening everybody and talking, hey, everybody needs to do it in the right way. And I was literally sweating because I hope nobody looks on my screen because only this reason would be enough to be killed. By the time they actually spoke, it was clear things had changed a lot. He talked very different, that everybody needs to fight and this way is the only way. And if you don't do it, so you don't care about your family, that they will be killed or be raped or so on, you know. And then just to turn, he will punish 
his own friends. And he, he told me, if I don't want to join him, he needs to kill me. It's hard for him. He loved me once, but this is the right way. When Rafa escaped to Germany in 2015, for Mazin, this was the last straw. He was very disappointed and very, very angry. You decided to escape. How could you do it? You need to be killed. You didn't deserve to be alive and so on. And he promised me that he will kill our friends that stayed there and didn't join him. And I think one year later, he killed one of our friends. Yeah. Then I realized that the friend which I knew is no, no longer existed. Virginie, what about the court of public opinion? There are people who aren't interested in things like a fair trial or the rule of law. They just want these terrorists dealt with in the harshest possible way. How do people like you who are working in this field, in fact, what do you say to them? What do you say to those people? I think we need to remind ourselves and the public need to remember that we are democracies. People are entitled to fair trial. However horrific the crime may be, we still uphold certain values. And if we don't, we are actually falling into the kind of narratives that is being put forward, like organizations such as Daesh when they are recruiting people, saying that we are corrupted democracies, corrupted governments. So we're actually playing the game of those terrorist organizations. So of course people need to be prosecuted, but they need to have access to fair trial. And also um, we have to do a lot of work around media reporting on terrorism and how we are informing the public and trying to stay away from the polarization of society and communities. Rudy, you've reported on these things a lot. Do you agree with that, that the media should be doing better? You are right about the role of the media in, in t towards the Muslim community. Some of us are fighting against this, but the only moments that our Muslim fellow brothers are portrayed in the media it's when they, were, when they are a problem. From practical experience, we tried to give a human face, to try to humanize these fighters, these women, these children. The federal prosecutors in Belgium, they were on the same level as I was. We in Belgium, we have the possibility to trial them. And still, the general media could support this. We lost control. You, you have no idea what the, the avalanche of hatred came out of social media and managed to manipulate the public opinion, while on the practical level, the success rate of de-radicalization after five years of prison is high. They say here that 90% of the women and 80% of the male, it was successful to reintegrate it. So, but they are not prepared to listen. Joanna? We're talking about uh, Western European countries um, and, and the lack of uh, proactive responses to bring back these populations. But I think what's also interesting here is that there are a number of countries globally who have been very active in actually going over, taking these populations back home and actively uh, leading government programs to rehabilitate and reintegrate these. One of the, the most active globally has been Kazakhstan, who went and repatriated hundreds of their citizens, including women and minors, charged some of the women with criminal activities. They were uh, prosecuted. 
Others have been rehabilitated and are being returned and reintegrated uh, to differing extents. Kosovo was another interesting example of that. And obviously, these national contexts are all, all quite different, quite unique. And I think those uh, examples are interesting ones to highlight as well. So, Shiraz, if we're going down the prosecution route, are we set up to do that? What's interesting is that in the UK, almost everyone who's actually committed a terrorist attack, who has then been prosecuted, has actually been prosecuted under existing criminal legislation and not under uh, the Terrorism Act. So offences against the person, for example, that makes it illegal for you and I to go out and stab somebody. And so those who argue against counterterrorism legislation in this country point out that, in fact, existing criminal law is adequate, actually. And that, in fact, the Terrorism Act pulls us into a whole new space, as they would say, I would not agree, but of thought crime and policing thoughts in that way. So I think that does speak to your broader point, though, about this othering of uh, terrorist actors. Oni, you're very directly involved in helping people de-radicalise. And am I right in thinking that there are former extremists, formers as you call them, who also help you out with this? I would say that there is a certain uh, kind of number of people who are disengaging that that's a part of their kind of redemption work that they do, that they feel that they owe, that they have to give back, visiting the school, sharing their stories. They can also work as a mentors. They can kind of bring hope for the people that it's not easy process, but I've been going through it. I can give you the kind of the insights that that what kind of process it is. One is also the bridge building, like that, of course, the formers through their own experiences that they can connect the communities and people giving their opinions and their insights when you are doing alternative messaging or counter messaging and then what works, what doesn't work. But of course, that it's very important that uh, there is a duty of care. First of all, that it doesn't kind of create the possibility to re-traumatize or relapse in their own process. Also, that if you do the semi-public or public appearances, that what are the possible consequences, the videos or the, this, that they stay in the internet. Of course, there's a whole uh, another thing about that. Do you want to become labeled as a former? Is it something that you would really want to build your future identity on? Virginie, Oni's talking about formers and, and the experience of when people are trying to leave, but you're involved with stopping people joining in the first place. How do you do that? When we talk about terrorism and violent extremism these days, we always talk about religiously motivated uh, extremism. And in short, we're thinking Islamic extremism. And it's quite problematic because we're falling into that discussion of polarization. You know, there's not just Daesh extremism, there's also right-wing extremism. I work for Victoria University in Australia. For us, it was a very hard hit to see what happened in Christchurch in New Zealand because the perpetrator was actually an Australian. If we put out one fire, um, we're not actually tackling what is behind that appeal to violent extremism. So today it's Daesh, tomorrow it will be something else. And before Daesh, we were talking about Al-Qaeda. We need, as governments, as researchers, as practitioners, to really look long and hard about what are those vulnerabilities that make those individuals tick. What we've learned with ISIS is that there is not one pattern in terms of radicalization, but we were very surprised to find that we had people as young as 13, 14 years old wanting to go and join ISIS and go to Syria. Then the question becomes, how is it possible that as a society we 
failed our young people, that they see Daesh as the possible future. And unfortunately, it requires a lot of reform. You know, access to employment, access to education. But unfortunately, reforms such as these are not very sexy within the political arena. So, Shiraz, is it a case of, like, you know, include me or I will go and find somebody who will? I don't think it's as straightforward as that. Clearly, there are huge structural issues that are underlying a lot of this in terms of integration, how people find their identity and connect. The issue becomes, how do we create more cohesive societies, societies to which people want to belong, societies to which people uh, identify and feel a sense of uh, belonging and protection? Um, And I don't think that is uh, necessarily straightforward or easy one, or indeed one that particularly just afflicts young uh, uh, Muslims in the West. These are fairly pervasive and systemic questions for our societies, um, to which, unfortunately, I would say two things. One is that there is no quick solution, and B, uh, you know, this is something that is likely to be inherent uh, as a generational struggle for, for you know, I'd say, the rest of our lives. And Oni, you wanted to come in there? Sometimes it's not like that people became socially excluded. Some people born socially excluded before they ever heard about any any radical thoughts that they have the attitudes toward the government or the mainstream society that they take proud out of the to be outside of it but of course not all the all the radicalized or extreme people are coming from disadvantages background there there can be the uh, lots of other reasons uh, also and the people from all social classes can be radicalized and become extremists What is it that makes the extremist message stick? How can we understand its appeal? You remember Jesse Morton from our second episode? He was once a recruiter for Al-Qaeda until he was sentenced to 11 and a half years in jail. He understands some of those reasons. He talks about being abused as a child, about how he ran away from home at the age of 15, but also about his disillusionment with the society he was living in. I think that much of what I grew up around as a traumatized individual made me susceptible to radicalization, but also that the context of our culture was not conducive to healing. I had no stability until I found Islam and suddenly you're praying five times a day with structure. I went from being a homeless runaway kid with a good brain and a good heart to finding people that instead of thinking about, you know, what next uh, consumer purchase they were going to make, I would instead be in study circles called halakha, laying with my head on the lap of a brother, memorizing Quran and feeling connected by the spiritual empowerment of the Islamic tradition in an era of globalization where there was a book called Jihad versus Mikworld. It seemed in fact like jihadists were promoting substance and that the globalization that the United States was leading was promoting shopping and McDonald's. And then because you can't just have stability take away the trauma, and unfortunately I ran into jihadist preachers uh, that basically uh, gave me trauma treatment, if you will, by showing me love and giving me meaning and significance and camaraderie I had never experienced, I just took all of that pain and anger that I held from my own society, thinking that we were becoming dim-witted fools that only cared about what we could purchase 
into something that I found spiritually exhilarating. That is the process of terrorism. So you wouldn't even have to tell an individual to become a terrorist. You would just have to give them the theological and sociopolitical justifications to do so. The ideas can infect an individual to the degree where they come to the conclusion that I am a soldier for this cause, and that's the way that I am going to contribute to it. Jesse's focus is now on using all of his experience to try and prevent extremism. His organisation is called Parallel Networks, and for a very good reason. You have to give a person a new network to belong to. And that network has to be built on principles antithetical to hate and extremism, but it still has to offer meaning, significance, purpose, and camaraderie. Understanding the importance of not just having an anti-jihadist message, but having an alternative message that is a coherent, comprehensive worldview that can argue against the message of the jihadists, but that can also show the futility of turning towards terrorism to try to attain some idyllic objective that ends up to be barbarous. So I think we've gotten some of the way there in trying to understand why people become extremists and how we can stop them doing that in the first place. Um, Can I just ask each of you if you can just give me a a final thought on the kind of direction we need to be going when it comes to thinking about de-radicalisation? Rudy, let me start with you. Inclusion, inclusion, inclusion. Give these generations a seat at the table. I've seen too many profiles of people from all kinds of of levels in society who went radicalising and went out. I can see the same thing now happening with extreme right young people who are doing the same thing. Listen to them, give them a seat at the table, take them seriously and give them a role in our mainstream media. Get them out of this toxic social media environment. Joanna? One thing I really highlight in my work is the value of a gender lens. I think it helps us better understand the distinct uh, and sometimes unique motivations and uh, and pathways that young men and young women might face, children might face as they go into these groups, and the circumstances under which they might be able to disengage from those. It also means that when they're reintegrating back into their communities, a gender lens can really help us think more uh, robustly about how that might be a bit different for a young woman or an older man, and, and really tailor those uh, kind of responses and understanding a bit more appropriately. Thank you. Uh, Virginie? I will join Rudy when he talked about the inclusion. Inclusion is really important. It's very hard today, especially among certain communities, to have discussions around, for example, the notion of jihad. And that kind of discussion is also now impacting on their own understanding of young uh, Muslims, for example, and how they understand one of the pillars of their own faith, which is actually a beautiful pillar within the Muslim faith. We, today we talk about jihad, it's not a dirty word. We need to be able to open that space to have the conversation, and that's really important, a safe space. And that also leads to inclusion. The next thing I want to uh, say is that we can combat violent extremism as much as we like, but as long as we do not address the root causes, the vulnerabilities, we will just be the firefighters putting out the fires and not actually going at the source of of those particular fires. Okay, um, Shiraz. This is a highly complex phenomenon. Even with those who elected to join ISIS, you could see a a sort of different typology amongst different types of people who were motivated. And for some people, uh, it's a very primitive kind of thing, whether that's the attraction to the violence and to... um, 
that sense of utopia. For others, it's more ideological. For others, it's more uh, intellectual uh, and so on. And so I think in all of our discussions about this, we need to foreground that appreciation into the same aspects of um, de-radicalization and looking at countering this stuff. And just as we don't take a one-size-fits-all approach to the reduction of crime, I think there is this search within the CVE community to, to find this panacea. And, and, you know, frankly, it doesn't exist. Um, Oni? Uh, when it comes to the prevention, we have to win hearts, not the minds. We have to be willing to engage with you. We have to be willing to be interested about your life and why you think, how you think. And especially when it comes to the young people that when they start expressing these kind of thoughts, which are for the adults, the kind of alarming or worrying, then very easily the adults go with this kind of panic mode. But with the young people, it's also part of the identity building to look into different kind of thoughts. And, and it's very important that in those moments that you are present and you are offering alternatives to be there, to be present, to be willing to engage and stay there, even if the, it's a difficult conversation. For me, it is like giving me the kind of the role that I'm de-radicalizing people. But in my work, in exit work, I cannot really do that. I can provide you certain things to help your process, but it's your process. And you have to take the responsibility what you have done, but you also have to take the responsibility to build your future. I'd like to thank Virginie André, Oni Sarvella, Rudy Frank, Shiraz Mayer, Joanna Cook, Rafat and Jesse Morton for helping us understand something of the complexity of the journey into and out of extremism. Once an extremist, always an extremist? Not necessarily. That's it for this edition of Taking Apart Terror. Search for us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the series, please do leave us a star rating and a review. It makes a huge difference to how many people find us. And of course, follow or subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Like the next one where we ask, is there life after terror? And look at how people and communities go about recovering from the terrible things that violent extremism inflicts on them. I'm Adnan Sawa. Till the next time. Goodbye.